Yeah, we're in chapter 3 of the book of Amos. If you're following along in the Bibles in the pew racks in front of you, we'll be on page 812. Will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? I'll be reading all of chapter 3 this morning. Listen to this message that the Lord has spoken against you, Israelites, against the entire clan that I brought from the land of Egypt. I have known only you out of all the clans of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Can two walk together without agreeing to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when it has no prey? Does a young lion growl from its lair unless it has captured something? Does a bird land in a trap on the ground if there is no bait for it? Does a trap spring from the ground when it has caught nothing? If a ram's horn is blown in a city, aren't people afraid? If a disaster occurs in a city, hasn't the Lord done it? Indeed, the Lord God does nothing without revealing his counsel to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who will not prophesy? Proclaim on the citadels in Ashdod and on the citadels in the land of Egypt. Assemble on the mountains of Samaria and see the great turmoil in the city and the acts of oppression within it. The people are incapable of doing right. This is the Lord's declaration. Those who store up violence and destruction in their citadels. Therefore, the Lord God says, an enemy will surround the land. He will destroy your strongholds and plunder your citadels. The Lord says, as the shepherd snatches two legs or a piece of an ear from the lion's mouth, so the Israelites who live in Samaria will be rescued with only the corner of a bed or the cushion of a couch. Listen and testify against the house of Jacob. This is the declaration of the Lord God, the God of armies. I will punish the altars of Bethel on the day I punish Israel for its crimes. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. I will demolish the winter house and the summer house. The houses inlaid with ivory will be destroyed, and the great houses will come to an end. This is the Lord's declaration. Thank you for standing in honor of the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless this time. Lord, as we come before your word, Lord, would you speak to us through it? Lord, would we have ears to hear and eyes to see? God, would your Holy Spirit move among us today? Instruct our hearts. Lord, convict us of sin. Call sinners to repentance. Guide us in your ways and in your paths, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder, have you ever coached your child's team before? Have you ever coached your child's team? I have. Uh, and I'm just thinking about this text and wondering, you know, if you're anything like me, you are petrified that anyone would think that you were giving your own child some sort of preferential treatment, right? Like all the parents are watching how you're managing the game, and especially in a day like today, it seems like all eyes are on you. Are you going to favor your child or not? You know, perspectives have a way of skewing 
just how perfectly just we actually are. We might think we're being fair, but sometimes we struggle. But one thing that is true of our Heavenly Father, He is always perfectly just. And He definitely doesn't let His chosen people get away with any sort of shenanigans. That's the essence of what's taking place here in Amos chapter 3. Looking in your outlines that were provided this morning, I'd like for you to consider with me first the recipients of punishment. The recipients of punishment. God's prophet Amos tells the people of Israel, the Lord God has spoken against them. He identifies them as the clan or the family that he had brought out up out of the land of Egypt. Look at verse 2 in chapter 3 in your Bibles where God says, I have known only you. In these verses, we understand the Israelites were, they, they were the chosen people of God, the redeemed people of God. Out of all the peoples of the earth, God had a special covenant relationship with the Israelites. In the cases of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the Bible makes it clear that their election was not based on anything found in the individual men. So, for example, from Abraham, we learn that election is not by merit. It wasn't because Abraham was a better dude than everybody else in the land of Ur. It was God called him. From Isaac, we learn it's not by physical strength. And from Jacob, we discover it's not even by inheritance. God's election is by God's grace alone. But the Israelites, they thought that their role as God's chosen people would somehow protect them from any harm whatsoever. Kind of like your unsuspecting child when they are assigned to your team. When they find out their dad's going to be the coach, they think they're safe. They're good. There's never going to be a problem for them. They think they can get away with a few things. But your love for your child does not, or at least I should say should not, erase your sense of justice and impartiality. In fact, part of what proves you are a just and impartial coach is sticking with your word. If you say every kid is going to play 20 minutes or whatever, then every kid plays 20 minutes, especially your own child. This is because of the proximity to you. They stand first in line for the adherence to your rules, don't they? This is the logic of punishment. And the second point in your outline, if you are following along, God says in verse 2, you only have I known, therefore... Do you see the logic there? Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. The ESV study Bible says it well. It's precisely because God has known them as his chosen people and as a nation that they are being judged according to a higher standard. God had given his word to the Israelites that if they disobeyed him, he would punish them. The logic goes like this. Uh, from God's perspective, as though he were speaking to the Israelites. He says, Israel, you and I are uniquely covenantally bound. By the terms of our covenant, it's your responsibility to obey, and it's my responsibility to punish you if you don't. Therefore, I am the one who will punish you for your sins. That last phrase in verse 2 proves that this punishment was not whimsical, it was a punishment for their iniquities, for your sins. They deserved to be punished. Dear friend, this morning, I want to just tell you, when God punishes, 
It is because our sins deserve it. By grace, God had given the Israelites more than they had deserved, but they had scorned the grace of God and disobeyed the covenant God had made with them. As a consequence, the Israelites received the punishment they were due. The rest of Amos makes it clear that they thought punishment is never going to come for us. If we're God's chosen people, we're safe all the time, no matter what. But far from denying that God could do that to them, they should have been expecting it. Look at number three, the expectation of punishment. As God's covenant people, they should have expected it. Verses three through six kind of lay this out for us. What happens is we see this series of questions that the promise the prophet Amos helps the Israelites see everything has a cause. Like there's a natural outflow to certain things. There's an underlying reason for the punishment that is about to be brought. So for example, in verse three, two people don't go for a walk unless they first agreed to meet together. A lion roars when it has its prey. What it does is it terrifies its prey with the roar and then it tracks it down and rips it to pieces carries it back to the den for the young lion to enjoy. And then it growls in satisfaction. That's the way it works. The lions don't just roar for fun. They roar for a reason, and then they growl once they've enjoyed the food. A trap doesn't go off all by itself. It doesn't go off willy-nilly. It goes off because something has been ensnared. You're getting the idea. There's a cause and effect. There's a reason behind everything. On and on the prophet goes, each couplet creates expectation, a certainty of punishment to come, except perhaps the very first one. I will quote uh, commentator Alec Motyer at length here because he points out how in verse three, something wonderfully unexpected happens. If you're looking in your Bible, that's the part where it says, can two walk together without agreeing to meet? And he asks, or he notes that There's this before and after pattern in verses four through six, but he says, where's the second half of verse three that would conform to this pattern? It wouldn't have been difficult for the prophet Amos to come up with some sort of after to the before of verse three. So for example, Amos could have written, do two walk together unless they've agreed to meet? Can a marriage be restored if the certificate of a divorce has been written? Right? There can be like a a follow-on to verse 3. It'd be simple enough to add, but there is no second or final question that is asked in verse 3. It stands waiting for an answer. And while it waits, we are shown three times that there's an inevitability to certain things, that things always pass through an interim period to their inevitable conclusion. The moment of hope doesn't tarry forever. There's always a resolution. And so after the illustrations, verses 7 and 8 of Amos 3 explain why verse 3 had been left incomplete. Again, we see in verse 8, the roaring lion. The lion is heard roaring, but it is not followed, like verse 4, with the growl. Instead, the roaring lion has provoked the voice of prophecy. The roar roar comes, but there is no growl to follow. In verse 8, there's the roar, and then there's the prophet speaking. So what is the completed picture? What is the prophet saying? The arrangement 
that the people of God have with the Lord, this covenant that they're in, is threatened. This agreement to walk together is under deep and serious risk. Unless an action is taken, the punishment will inevitably come. The roar will be followed by the growl. But in this interim period, this precious, crucial moment, however belated it might be, a decision can still be made. There is an incompleteness, and the structure of verse 3 leaves the future open. The voice of the prophet calling for the people, renew your arrangement with the God. Renew your arrangement with the Lord and act promptly. For even as the prophet is speaking, the lion is roaring, and there will be a growl to come. Do you get the picture? There's this moment where we're in the in-between, and the prophet is calling the people to repentance. This is why I've called this the expectation of punishment and not the certainty of punishment. Dear friend, today the lion still roars. In our context today, I want to just tell you, the Lord will punish sin. But the God of grace doesn't send disaster without sending the warning first. This is the point of me preaching. When I'm preaching that judgment is coming, I can assure you, on the authority of the word of God, judgment is coming. Punishment for unredeemed sinners will come. But warning of judgment does not condemn you to judgment. In the patience of God, we are in between, so to speak, the lion roaring and the lion growling. How will you respond? How will you respond? Look next with me now to the end of verse 6. And observe with me, fourthly, the agent of punishment. The agent of punishment. Amos says in verse 6, if a disaster occurs in a city, hasn't the Lord done it? Now, reflecting on this passage, James Boyce writes, quote, Christian people seem very reluctant to admit this fact. And instead of admitting it, they seem to be trying to get God off the hot seat by blaming the devil They'll distinguish between primary and secondary causes, or they might blame simple, you know, impersonal acts of nature. And the strange thing is, the Bible doesn't do that. No doubt there are primary and secondary causes. Yes, there is a devil. But the Bible teaches that God controls the secondary as well as the primary causes. He even controls the devil. This is what the book of Job is about, the story of Job. Although the devil wanted to injure Job, he was unable to do so until God called attention to Job and actually gave the devil permission to remove his possessions, inflict him with boils. And even in this, God had fixed the points, the boundaries of what the devil could and could not do. Everything he has is in your hands, Job 1.12. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. He's, he's God's devil on a leash, right? He has a, a boundary to which he cannot cross. He is in your hands, but you must spare his life. Job 2 and verse 6. Isaiah 45 and verse 7 says, uh, speaking of God, I form light and create darkness. I make success and create disaster. 
I am the Lord who does all these things. This is not my theology. This is the word of God. And all of us are called to wrestle with the sovereignty of God in texts like this. Hear me. As a pastor, I can assure you from personal experience that this and this text in Amos 6, or excuse me, Amos chapter 3 and verse 6, is just as unpopular today as it was when Amos was preaching. But the central argument to this entire section is that the Lord himself is the agent of punishment. Now to confirm this, look back with me to verse 2. If you look at the end of verse 2, the I is emphatic. I have known only you out of the clans of the earth, therefore I will punish you. Oh sure, you could say the Assyrians were the ones that caused the Israelites to go into exile. Of course, they were the secondary cause. But God is making very clear, and he's telling them beforehand, you can know for sure it is I who will punish you for your iniquities because I am telling you beforehand through the prophet, I am the one who will bring the disaster. And Amos tells them the way you can know that it is God who is going to bring the disaster is because he's revealed it beforehand through the prophet. So in verse 7 and verse 8, we see fifthly, the prophet of punishment. When God speaks, or no, better, when God roars, the prophet Amos is compelled to prophesy. Yahweh has caused this disaster. He has revealed it to Amos, and Amos feels compelled to proclaim it will come. In sequence, it is just as inevitable as the rest of the reactions above. I think this is one of the reasons why Paul would say, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. It doesn't matter how unpopular the message may be. God has given his word. He will come again and he will judge sin. I don't know how many of you uh, watched the video of the, the meteorologist in Mississippi. This was like a month or so ago. And he was looking at his screen, you know, they got the green screen or whatever behind him, and he's looking down at his monitor, and he sees that the tornadoes that are going to sweep through are going to totally destroy this town. And there's this moment where he kind of like chokes up, and he says, this is real, this is happening, I can't stop this, you need to get out of there. And then he like prays on, on the air, dear Jesus, please help these people. That's, that's this right here. That's where Amos is. There's an inevitable disaster coming. And he says, please, please repent. Re realize this is going to happen. The prophet is compelled to speak. Friends, some of you give me the great privilege of looking into the whites of your eyes week after week. And yet you never take me or better, never take God up on the good news, the gospel, the gift that is being offered to you of salvation from certain coming judgment. And I just beg you again today, Woe to me again today if I don't plead with you 
received Jesus by faith. He took the punishment we deserve for our sins. Because you and I are not promised next week for me to look into the whites of your eyes again. Look back with me now to verse 9. We've seen the recipients, the logic, the expectation, the agent of punishment, and now the prophet of punishment, Amos. But in verse 9, we will see two witnesses who are called on to testify against the Israelites leading unto their punishment. In verse 9, we see, Proclaim on the citadels in Ashdod and on the citadels in the land of Egypt. Assemble on the mountains of Samaria and see the great turmoil in the city and the acts of oppression within it. So Ashdod and Egypt are what I'm calling, sixthly, the witnesses unto punishment. The witnesses called unto punishment. Ashdod were the Philistines and Egypt Both of these were traditional oppressors of Israel. And yet what Amos is saying in verse 9 is that these nations, these Gentile nations who did not have the benefit of God's revelation or the election of God are now being called by God to observe the Israelites. Come sit up on the mountains around Samaria on the northern kingdom and watch what's happening in their land. God's law always required two witnesses to condemn somebody's guilt. And these two wicked nations are able to sit in judgment on the mountains of northern Israel and see, seventhly, the behaviors that were deserving of punishment. God calls them in verse 9 to watch the oppression that is taking place in the northern kingdom. In verses 9 and 10, I want to see three behaviors in 9 through the end of this chapter. Verses 9 and 10, generally speaking, the behavior is oppression of others. Verse 10 says they are so far gone, they're actually incapable of doing the right thing. They are violent and destructive. Now, no oppression is okay, but what is even more condemnable is that the wealthy Israelites were oppressing their own people. But then secondly, the behavior leading to punishment was living sensuously. Verse 12's description of their beds and their cushions and their couches means that the people lived in luxury. They lived in sensuality. They pampered themselves and they cared nothing for the poor or the needy. And then thirdly, in verses 13 through 15, we find the emptiness of their religion. The emptiness of their religion Their altars were worthy of punishment. The traditional refuge, we've studied this a little bit when we were looking at the tabernacle, the horns of the altar would be a place to go and lay refuge, to lay hold of the altar of God. And when the people would go to find refuge there, what are they going to find? Those horns are cut off. God despised Israel's oppressive and violent ways. He invited the heathen nations to come in and see the way they mistreated each other while they pampered themselves. And God would correct their errant hope that he would ever rescue them when calamity strikes. Dear friend, if your religion is a list of checkboxes, like if you have a checklist, like this is how to be religious, or you go to church and you maybe pay your dues, so to speak, and smile at one another and then pridefully leave here unchanged, Your religion is a stench to God. We'll study more about that in Amos chapter 5. The Bible says in the book of James that real religion 
is to look after those who are in need. One of the easiest jobs at Leonardtown Baptist Church, the easiest places to serve, should be the warm coordinator position. Which, by the way, Tyler and Amber Nogle have agreed to serve in that role for us this coming year. I'm super excited about that. And listen, what I'm saying is the Nogles should have to turn people down because we have too many people signing up to help people in our community who need a warm place to stay, a bed, a place to sleep, some food, and some care for them. Our service and our partnership alongside the Shecklers, uh, where they are at the Hope Center in Birmingham, uh, it should be a no-brainer to help them because they help the community, the, the marginalized of the world community seem to come right there to Nietzsche's. What a privilege it is for us to partner with them. Our care for orphans, children in foster care, the needy and impoverished around us should be a natural overflow of our lives. Our partnership with disaster relief, willingness to go and help others when they are in a crisis should be a natural overflow for those who have found refuge in Jesus Christ. This week on Thursday, um, through some communication through the BCMD, there was a church over in Poolsville that had heard of a need in St. Leonard. And so the director of missions from the Potomac Baptist Association and I went to the house of a development, developmentally delayed man whose mother has died and uh, his caregiver had to be uh, let go. And this man needs help desperately. And so there may be a call in the future where I ask for many hands to make light work of helping this gentleman. He has nobody. And we were able to witness, even though we didn't physically do anything, when we laid eyes on the situation and prayed with him in Jesus' name and told him help is coming, uh, it is a testimony to the grace of God in our lives. It begins, all of this, by recognizing the depths of despair from which we ourselves were rescued. I, I'm emotional because I'm thinking about where this guy was, and that's a picture of where we all were without Christ. You may never have been enslaved or oppressed, disadvantaged financially, but we've all been enslaved or oppressed by sin and dead spiritually. Scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you and I might become rich. Leonardtown Baptist, do we dare hoard the riches of Christ to ourselves and not share them with those in need? If there's no overflow of good works from the grace of God in your life, James tells you it's time to do a pulse check. Faith without works, he says, is dead. It could be that instead of piling up God's grace, you are storing up God's wrath for the day of wrath. God's riches and his kindness and patience is meant to lead you to repentance, faith, and subsequent good works. But hardness of heart may lead you to storing up punishment. 
This leads me to number eight. That is the means of punishment. The means of punishment. If you look very carefully at verse 10, there is a double meaning to what Amos is saying. It would be only natural to think that those who are oppressing others are storing up wealth and prosperity that they have gained on the backs of other people. That they take the the money and the prosperity that they've gained by oppression and put it in their storehouses and in their citadels. But Amos turns it around and notes that what is actually being stored up is violence and destruction. They are heaping up piles of violence in their barns. They're stacking up rows and rows of destruction in their citadels. They're saving it in their safe rooms, in their giant winter and summer houses. And what goes on to happen to all that that they've stored up in verse 10? Look at verse 11. Therefore, the Lord God says, an enemy will surround the land. He will destroy your strongholds and plunder your citadels. Now, what's inside of those strongholds and citadels? Verse 10 tells you the violence and destruction. The enemy is going to come and they'll plunder what you've plundered. They'll be the ones who steal all that violence and destruction that you've stored up and they're going to use that on you. This is the boomerang effect of sin, like Haman. You know, the deeds come back on their own heads. God tells him in verse 12, when the enemy comes and plunders the citadels of violence and destruction and uses it against you, don't count on a miraculous deliverance. In fact, what will end up being rescued after the invasion will only be enough to identify that there were victims. I'm calling it ninthly, the remains after punishment. The remains after punishment. A shepherd was required to present some sort of remains of the sheep to its owner as an evidence that it hadn't been stolen or lost by the one that was taking care of it. The shepherd could bring the ear or the, do they have hooves, you know, Anderson family? I don't know, whatever, the, the bottom of the feet, you know, a little wool, I don't know. So you could bring a piece of a sheep to prove that you didn't steal it, a part of the sheep. In other words, the devastation will be total and the remains will be minimal. But as one commentator insightfully asked this question, what do you think we can gather by the type of remains that is found in Northern Kingdom? There's the corner of a bed. There's a part of a couch. In other words, you can identify what was lost by the pieces and parts left over. Luxury, sensuality, laziness, bodily care. These are the leftovers of the people of God? Where are the pieces of an altar? The ruins of the temple? Any evidence of true religion or true spiritual living? The remains after punishment show how far gone the people really were. Look, if your home was torn apart by an invading army, I wonder, could we find remnants of your devotional book? What about your Bible? What about the songs you sing with your kids? Would it just be all sports equipment, video games, fishing stuff, and luxury? Or could we identify you were a Christian by the remains left over? And then lastly, consider with me the houses of punishment. Amos says in verse 13, 
listen and testify against the house of Jacob. Verse 14, he says, the God of armies will punish the altars of Bethel. Now, if you know a little bit of Hebrew, you know Bethel means house of God, like Bethlehem, house of bread, house of God. Not only will their strongholds be defenseless against the attack, but the house of God will also be under direct punishment. And when the house of God falls, hear me, no house will stand. You can see that sequence continue in verse 15 of chapter 3. The winter house goes, the summer house goes, the house inlaid with ivory, the great house. There's no house that will be safe from the destroying God of armies, destroying arm of the God of armies. The Lord is going to judge every house, most of them described as houses of luxury, and it says that the judgment of those houses begins the house of God. Dear friend, that is the pattern and prescription of Amos chapter 3. Punishment begins with the people of God and the house of God. The Israelites will not be exempt from divine punishment. Far from it. Judgment will fall on the chosen and the covenant people of God. And ultimately, on this side of Calvary, now in the New Testament, we know that judgment of God has fallen on the true and better Israel, God's Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Hence the writing in the gospel that says, Out of Egypt I have called my Son, referring to our Lord Jesus and equating him to the people of Israel. Jesus was the fulfillment of what Israel failed to do in covenant relationship with God. Now, this idea of judgment beginning with God's people is backwards from the way most people tend to think about it. It was counterintuitive in Amos's day. They thought they were going to be okay because they were in a covenant relationship with God that he would never follow through. Glenn Scrivener explains it like this. Most people tend to think that if you're God's people, you get God's preferential treatment, salvation and blessings and God's favor. And the people that aren't God's people get all the bad stuff, judgment and curses. But in reality, the whole earth is God's house, not just the temple and not just Israel. Yes, there is a special sense in which Israel is God's house, but it's meant to mediate God's blessings out to all the nations. And the shock of all shocks is that actually, because they are at the head of the world, Israel is the first in line for judgment. We saw that today in our text. Verse 2, again, You only have I known of all the clans of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. We see it in 1 Peter, for example, from the New Testament. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So what happens is Jesus comes as the house of God. He stands as the true Israel, and he takes that judgment on himself at the cross. And then having become that place of refuge, having tasted of all of God's judgment, he then invites the world into himself as the true temple, the living temple a true safe place from God's wrath. That's how salvation works. We are invited in from all nations, tribes, and tongues into the house of God being built up in Jesus Christ 
So judgment and salvation is not, there are good people who get the nice stuff and nasty people who get nasty stuff. No, it's actually, there's the house of God that receives the judgment first, but in Christ, he becomes the place of safety and salvation for all who find refuge in him. So either you will receive the wrath of God or Christ has received the wrath of God for you. There are no alternatives. Now be very careful. You may be thinking I'm talking about somebody else today. That's what the people in the Northern Kingdom did. Well, that's certainly not referring to me. I'm in church every Sunday. Couldn't be me. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Either you will believe the words of Christ and avoid judgment, or you will reject the words of God's final revelation to us through his son Jesus and receive the just punishment for your sins. John chapter 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. He's sheltered by Christ. He has passed from death to life. And the question for you today is, will you repent when the lion has roared? Or will you presume on the riches of God's kindness and heap up more wrath like the Israelites storing up violence and destruction in their storehouses for the day of wrath and judgment when the lion from the tribe of Judah devours all his enemies?